This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, her fatal curiosity, tracing the origins of Bluebeard. Um, so, uh, we are doing another one of our fairy tales in focus, uh, for those who are only just tuning in and wondering what the hell that is. Essentially, uh, we, the dragons, take a lot of inspiration from folklore and fairy tales. Um, and, you know, we were talking so much about fairy tales and things like that, that we decided that it would actually be a really good idea to basically have a series of episodes which were dedicated to um, a fairy tale each um, so that we could really dig into um, you know the popular folklore uh, that they came from and talk about them uh, with more precision because there was just so much to say so we started doing this this fairy tales in focus series and we kind of do one of these episodes um, every few kind of <laughs> every few weeks yeah. Um, and this week we are looking at Bluebeard. Yeah, now Bluebeard is almost the original slasher serial killer tale, lightly dressed up as a fairy tale. Um, unlike many other fairy tales, its popularity appears to come from its sheer horror and macabre sense of glee. Yes. Um, now its origins are kind of strange and interesting, as we will see. And while it's slammed by many as one of the most sexist fairy tales, uh, a deeper examination of its themes reveals that it's actually not that simple. Yeah, now before we get started, just in case you've only just joined us on this, a brief overview of what we mean by fairy tale. Um, so fairy tales, morality tales, fables, myths and legends all get jumbled together, understandably. It's quite difficult to separate them out entirely because these sorts of stories exist in almost every culture in the world and what's a fairy tale in one place may be a legend in another. Broadly speaking, legends and epics contain a historical element and are considered to have happened in full or in part. Yeah. Whereas morality tales, fables and parables are concerned with delivering a message, usually a religious or philosophical message. Finally, fairy tales tend to contain fantasy creatures, so we're talking about dwarves, again, the... Uh, Mythical creature. Mythical creature. Uh, elves, gnomes, mermaids, dragons, etc. Um, and they don't tend to contain more than superficial references to religion, actual places, historical people or events. Uh, they happened once upon a time or uh, photo long ago. Yeah. Now, some folklorists prefer the term marchin or wonder tale, which also works. Now, while we're familiar with fairy tales as they have been preserved, uh, written down, uh, this, it's, it starts to get a little bit more complicated um, because it can make it a little bit tricky to get to the root because the sort of people who had access to writing and publishing were almost exclusively men, or at least were very rich. Uh, fairy tales were almost certainly stories told orally for thousands of years before that and were most likely handed from mother to daughter or grandmother to granddaughter. Um, another name for these is spinning tales, after all. We also do get the male equivalent as well for stories which were handed down father to son, usually, you know, during 
punting times or etc. Yeah. And the nature of a story is to shapeshift in order to survive. And fairy tales have been shapeshifting for a very long time. This is also why whenever you're looking at fairy tales or different versions of fairy tales, it's important to consider the, the context of when it became popular because fairy tales by their nature even if they don't necessarily contain a message always contain a reflection of the world of which they kind of they emerge definitely so with that in mind (laughs) let's dig into bluebeard (laughs) that's a disturbingly apt metaphor (laughs) okay bluebeard a history um, it's an Arne Thompson Folk Index class. Sorry, the Arne Thompson Folk Index, which I'm a big enough nerd to have actually read with some pleasure, <laughs> classifies the story as a 312 or a 312, which is the Maiden Killer. Yes, there are enough of these stories that they demand their own category. Honestly, if you consider that the biggest consumers of true crime novels, documentaries, and podcasts are women who are the most likely victims of those very crimes, Maybe you can see a parallel. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the best known version of Bluebeard today um, is the one written by the eminent French folklorist Charles Perrault. Um, We've got so much wrong. (laughs) I always feel sorry for him, but like... I do. uh, And then every now and again, I look at him as a person. I'm like, actually, I don't think I have any reason to feel sorry for you. You were... You were a dick. Um, but no. It kind of feels like if you were at a fancy party, the really, really earnest guy holding forth on a topic and not realising that you're all laughing into your sleeves at him. Yeah, um, except that every now and again, he will basically conspire to get someone else killed. Uh, and we're yeah. not getting into that. Uh, but <laughs> yes, so um, <laughs> Charles Perrault. Uh, however, there are lots of, uh, there are a number of inconsistencies in the story, as well as downright plot holes in both Perrault's version and in other iterations, which have led many folklorists to speculate that there were, or there was more complete earlier versions of the tale which were sort of oral versions that did not survive yeah um bluebeard takes its inspiration for some interesting sources however so let's dive in yes and we're going to begin with and this is this is a title for the ages connemar the the accursed Yeah. Now, Cunefauer, or Connemar, was a Breton chieftain notorious for his cruelty and brutality. He was an actual historical figure. He became well. He became a well-known villain as well. Or rather, this historical figure became a well-known villain in Breton myth. Um, that's how you get your name to survive, basically. Yeah. Um, his <laughs> become name means... a serial killer. <laughs> Yeah, his name means great dog, or perhaps sea dog, and he was believed to have been a werewolf. Yes, literally a werewolf. Now, referencing our earlier episodes about werewolves and how werewolf can mean serial killer in a time when there was no term for serial killer. Yeah, so do check that out, guys. (laughs) Yeah, he ruled Brittany around 540 ACE. Now, we have to apply a grain of salt here. Just, uh, just pepper it on. Uh, because what we know of the historical figure tangles um, inextricably with the legendary figure that he became. And almost everything we know about him comes from the lives of the Breton saints. 
Subsequently, it's very hard to separate the reality from the exaggeration or even the outright fantasy, because weirdly enough, saints' tales have an agenda. Yes. Now, we know that Connemar did a lot of very bad things. As in, even at a time where dying by the sword or in other grisly ways was fairly common, he made other early rulers pause and say, damn. <laughs> you know, some of the other Breton leaders are like, whoo, white <laughs> <Right>, man, <laughs> calm your shit. Um, okay. So the part of his life that concerns us uh, in the legend is his fourth wife. Yes, this is a... Uh, I'm not saying that Henry VIII uh, kind of took inspiration, but maybe. <laughs> the story goes that Connemar, um, in want of a wife, once again, you've got to start to be a bit suspicious at this point, yep. uh, set his sights on uh, Trefine. Is that how you say her name? I think so, yeah. Now, she was not keen on marrying him, weirdly enough, uh, because of his brutal reputation, and she found it just a teensy bit suspicious that she he should have lost three lives already. What's the what's the saying? Um, lose lose one. Um, that's it's a tragedy. A... Lose two. It's a pattern or something like that. Well, it's sheer carelessness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> However, uh, Connemar threatened to invade her father's lands if she would not marry him, um, which I think is the best way, apparently, to. Um, Win your beloved to, to over. Someone. <laughs> it's like, you will marry me or I will decimate your father's lands. Okay then. Now, uh, so uh, Trefany uh, consented under duress. Now, while Connemar is away at war, Trefany discovers a little secret chamber which contains rather grisly trophies of her husband's previous wives. The ghost of those, rather the ghosts, not just one, they didn't just merge. The ghosts of those wives appear to her and warn her that if she falls pregnant, Connemar will murder her as he did them. Uh, Connemar heard a prophecy that told him that he would be killed by his own son. This is kind of very Greek myth, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a bit sort of like, well, why did you keep getting married and having yeah. sex with people? Wouldn't it have been easier just to just not? Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Trefany is pregnant when she hears this warning, so she very sensibly runs away. Very sensible. Um, with magical aid from the dead wives, she gives birth to a son in the forest, which I don't want to think too much about. Yep. However, Connemar catches up with her. Trefany has just got time to hide her child before Connemar grabs her. On discovering that she has given birth, he tries to force her to tell him where the child is. Trefany refuses, and so Connemar beheads her in a rage. He leaves her dead in the forest. Now, um, at this point, uh, St. Gildas the Wise. They, they did have great names back then, didn't they? They did. He was a, he was a real person as well. That We've got a lot of his writings. <laughs> so St. Gildas the Wise, he happened to just be going through the woods, as one does when they're a saint. And he came across her body. Um, and just as, again, one does as a saint, he magically restores her to life. She is thus reunited with her son, um, and both mother and child live in secret and religious seclusion. Yeah, there's a discrepancy on how the story ends. In one version, Tremor, the son, seeks out his father, and on praying outside his father's gates, brings the walls of the Great Hall down on Connemar and kills him, as per the prophecy. Mm. In another version, Connemar finds his grown-up son and kills him after Trephany's death. <laughs> Sorry, it's like either the power of prayer or... <laughs> yeah. 
Um, okay, now, however it plays out, uh, the early influence on Bluebeard is obviously very apparent. Um, and again, I mean, without going into too much detail, there is just so many parallels. There is, you know, there is a lot of stories in myths and stuff like that, which involve prophecies and husbands basically killing their wives in order to avoid the prophecy. What would have been smarter, really, for him, is if he just didn't want that, is to kill the baby? Yep. But I guess he... I don't know. He was a bit yeah. weird. Um, I mean, not that killing killing a baby is also a bit <laughs> weird. <laughs> don't get me wrong. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, um, we know that all four of these people did exist in some form. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of St. Gildas's writings, for example. And, you know, he was he was not so much a fire and brimstone preacher, but he had very strange polemic. It was quite counter to everything that the so-called church, which wasn't really an organised body in the 7th century, mm. um, was putting out at the time. Um, but... I think we can safely say that because this all happened under the Church of the Celtic Rite, well, the Church of the Celtic Rite was essentially pagan, whereby they said, yes, we accept one god, and we have all these saints who, strangely enough, are very much like the gods we used to worship, and we all pray to them for specific things. Yes. <laughs> um, and I, it feels to me very much like uh, the, char- the historical figures have been mixed together with these old gods under the guises of saints, because both uh, Trephany and Tremor were sainted as well. Yeah later on and it it i think we've lost touch with the original breton gods we did lose an awful lot of them yes yeah we did so um this may well be basically uh part something from breton ancient myth that we've lost yeah uh, which again i think does stand to reason because there are so many parallels you know, with other myths. And that's not therefore me saying, oh, it's the same myth. It's me saying that there are certain concepts and ideas which appear in myths across the world because they actually relate to uh, the the natural order of the world. And, you know, perhaps if I'm go- perhaps if, if we allow Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung to kind of butt <laughs> in, you know, pe- they would say, oh, these are archetypes. These are something which is inherent within sort of the human sort of brain that we're born with these kind of concepts um regardless of what the origin is it does suggest that this version of the story might be based on older myths definitely um which brings us to a slightly more recent (laughs) character who most definitely existed and we do have the grizzly documents to prove it which is giles de reis who was born in 1405 Um, He was a knight and lord of Brittany and Anjou, and he served under Joan of Arc against the English in the Hundred Years' War, um, eventually becoming her personal protector. He had one job, (laughs) sorry. He had one job, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, admittedly, he didn't do so great with that. I mean, the French did sell Joan of Arc to the English when she was no longer of any use, so... I know. Um, But his service in the military eventually earned him the position Marshal of France, which was a position of great honour. Yeah. Now, in his free time, um, when he wasn't <laughs> failing <laughs> in his duties, uh, Yi ad- abducted children, um, and he raped them and he murdered them. 
now he also then allegedly used their body parts in experimental attempts at demon summoning. Yeah. Now, if you want to give yourself some sleepless nights, you can easily find accounts of what he did with the children. Very detailed accounts. Again, French. Excellent record keeping, guys. Thanks. <laughs> Medieval <laughs> France. For the purposes of this episode, I'm not going to go into that detail because I think it's enough to note that the child, usually a boy of around 11 or 12, but sometimes a girl, would be invited to attend uh, uh, Giles or Gilles to dress, he, they would then be dressed in fabulous clothes and given a feast with good wine. Um, the seduction, the giving the child the best night of, of his or her life in to lull them dollars. into, yeah, to <laughs> lull them into a sense of trust and security before luring them up to a secret torture chamber and horrifically breaking that trust seems to have been his big kink. And it, it's very disturbing. I mean, I'm not saying go and read the documents, but if you want to, it becomes very apparent from reading them that that is the thing. Yes. Um, now, uh, eventually, um, uh, an ecclesiastical di dispute led to Gilles being thoroughly investigated and his crimes coming to light when the remains of an estimated 50 to 150 children were brought out of his castle. He was hanged and burned for witchcraft. I mean, he confessed, but it doesn't appear that he was tortured, especially. Yeah. Um, I imagine he confessed because they had him dead to rights and the options were being hanged and committed to the flames dead or being burned alive. Um, I, I honestly, reading between the lines, I think that the charge of witchcraft may have basically served the purpose of He's a child murderer and a serial killer and we need to kill him. Ergo, we need to accuse him of a crime which carries a death penalty, which yeah. witchcraft did. Um, raping and killing peasant children carried the penalty of a fine. So they wanted him out of the picture. Yes. Um, it's, again, one of those things which stories like this make you kind of go, Perrault really did miss the point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um and, but once again, we can see the inspiration for Bluebeard here. And we can also see, again, the inspiration or the ideas that were kind of being presented, that might have been presented in the earlier versions, the peasantry versions of the story, and how they were then so massively misinterpreted by Perrault, who was writing for the aristocracy, who were, as Jules has just noted, basically able to do whatever they wanted because once again the murder of peasants um the 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 sexual assault the rape of peasants was was finable and as a, a french aristocrat that meant nothing um yeah. so we really do start to see how these kinds of these things begin to emerge yeah. Now, the basic plot for Bluebeard, in case anyone's not familiar with it. So, a very wealthy and powerful nobleman who has been married six times before is looking for wife number seven. Yes. Uh, now, he asks to marry one of his neighbouring but less powerful lord's daughters. Um, there is, uh, it should be said, that depending on how uh, Perrault's if we kind of use Perrault's version of the story is translated she isn't always a lord's daughter she might just be sort of like um not part of the peasantry but sort of more kind of the middle class kind of thing it Merchant's depends how daughter, it's translated yeah, yeah. 
Um, but essentially, she is of a lower class to him. Uh, the neighbour is horrified but cannot risk offending him with an outright refusal. Alternatively, some versions have it whereby uh, he he sort of proposes and he then holds these these massive feasts for everybody which go over a week and over that week the daughter basically goes well i guess he's not too bad despite the fact that i don't like him because of his blue beard and she's the one who accepts so slight variations but the same story yeah um so yeah she basically uh the younger daughter um kind of uh, thinks all right well this nobleman isn't too too bad despite the fact that she doesn't like his blue beard and she's a bit freaked out by it and she does agree to marry him um now all is well for a time uh but then bluebeard announces that he must go away for a while and he gives the keys to his palace to his wife basically saying that she can go into any room of the palace that she likes she can do whatever she wants except for one room and he then points out which key opens the door to that room and makes her promise that she will not go into it. Yeah. Uh, the young wife gives a party, inviting friends and her sister. And by party, I think we have to assume that it's basically like a, a week or two week long affair kind of thing. Yeah. Um, her sister is actually named as Anne. Uh, and the young wife is enjoying herself but the secret room plays on her mind which it would if you were living in a house and there's a secret room it would play on your mind okay yeah um eventually she takes a little key and opens the door yeah at which point she is horrified to discover that the floor is slick with blood and the bodies of her husband's previous wives are hanging from hooks in other versions of the tale um again depending on the translation it's literally that she opens it and there are just skeletons yeah now in her shock she drops the key in a pool of blood she retrieves it before fleeing despite her best efforts however she cannot clean the blood off the key which magically refuses to be cleaned bluebeard returns unexpectedly and sees the bloody key in a rage he threatens to kill his wife immediately she begs for a last prayer with her sister first, which he allows. Anne, the sister, summons their brothers who burst in at the nick of time and kill Bluebeard. At this point, the young wife inherits all of his wealth um, and she uses it to give her sisters dowries. And once they're all married, uh, she remarries herself and puts her nasty experience with Bluebeard behind her. Now, this version of the story we would look at it and we would be like, yes, okay, so clearly we know who the villain is. But once again, just to really shit on Perrault. <laughs> Perrault always ends his stories with a little moral. And do we want to guess what the moral of uh, Perrault's version of this story is? I mean, I can read it if you like, I've got it here. It's, O curiosity, curiosity, thou mortal bane, spite of thy charms, thou causest often pain, and sore regret of which we daily find a thousand instances attend mankind. For thou, O oh, may it not displease the fair, a fleeting pleasure art, but lasting care. Which is kind of vague, even for Perrault. It's kind of yes. like, you kind of brought this on yourself. <laughs> yeah, um... And it's strange because it, he kind of, again, depending on the translations, there, there are some others where it kind of goes a little bit into more detail. 
Um, so, for example, he, he always actually has two morals at the end. So the two that we have here, and these are based on the translation um, by Angela Carter. Um, moral number one is curiosity is a charming passion but may only be satisfied at the price of a thousand regrets one sees around one a thousand examples of this sad truth every day curiosity is the most fleeting of pleasures the moment it is satisfied it ceases to exist and it always proves very very expensive another moral is it is easy to see that the events described in the story took place many years ago. No modern husband would dare to be half so terrible, nor to demand of his wife such an impossible thing as to stifle her curiosity. But he never so quarrelsome or jealous, be he never so quarrelsome or jealous, he'll toe the line as soon as she tells him to. And whatever colour his beard might be, it's easy to see which of the two is the master. And I feel very much like that's Angela Carter. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, putting I mean, a little bit in, but also this idea that Perrault was shifting it a little bit into basically saying that the woman was the one in the wrong. She should have obeyed her husband. Um, and he's kind of harking back to, oh, those times before where men were the rulers of their house and women would do what they were told to do. Yeah, which is ironic, considering that wasn't the case at all. <laughs> exactly. And again, it kind of presents this idea of Perrault just completely missing the whole point. <laughs> okay, let's look at some versions of the story. Um, there are... Uh, okay, I've, I've sort of added to this list a couple that are just looking at the the whole idea of curiosity and what, what comes of curiosity and what people were sort of meaning by some of the early tales as well. So um, this isn't actually a version of Bluebeard, of course, and that is the story of the Garden of Eden. Yes. I'm sure everybody is familiar with this, you know, the fabulous tale with the snake and the apple, etc. Um, Eve takes the apple. Actually, she doesn't take an apple. She takes the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. And it's very specifically that. Um, at the persuasion of a serpent in the garden... And she eats of the fruit and suddenly she gains the knowledge that one day she will die. She is no longer innocent. She gains sentience, if you like. Yeah. And she persuades Adam to eat of the fruit as well. He also gains sentience, the knowledge of... Basically, they're no longer innocent beasts, if you like. And yeah. the garden is forbidden to them and they are driven out into the wilderness. And then there's this horrible passage where... Uh, Yahweh is saying, for your crimes, you shall have great pain giving ch giving children birth, etc. You'll have period pain, blah, 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 all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some of that has been added later on. And I am not a biblical scholar, I have to say. I, I don't have the time. I, I'm fascinated by it. And there are some great people who do really great jobs sort of retranslating and looking at things and looking at the context etc mm. and they, they generally advocate not cherry picking stuff from the bible which i completely agree with yeah um i will say that with the interpretation of the story that kind of makes most sense to me is that this is a way of distinguishing why human minds work the way they do in comparison to animals because we can very clearly see that we are biological flesh and blood meat vehicles just like animals are so 
why do we have cares? Why do we worry? Why do we think about things like morality? Um, why is it murder for one of us to kill another one of our kind kind of thing? Yeah. Um, this whole idea of eating this fruit, which grants you the sentience and the fact that it was the female who took it. Well, that's your subconscious mind. Not that they understood what they had the term subconscious, but that's your subconscious mind getting hold of an idea, as so often happens, and causing you to consciously bring it into reality, which would be Adam eating the fruit. Yeah. Um, another thing, and again, it's also important to remember that different versions of the story will have affected different things. And a lot of the fairy tales that we see um, and versions of the st stories that we see come from the Victorian period. And it's strange how in the Garden of Eden, we then start to get this reinterpretation of it being also this idea of growing up in yeah. you know the childhood innocence and the woman is the first to reach stuff and and it's it's the whole consciousness of being naked and stuff like that it's the consciousness of one's body and the consciousness of basically uh losing innocence and there was this whole concept of you know children being inherently innocent until they had kind of learned and i think that there's something to be said about the woman being the one who does it first because stereotypically we tend to sort of see women as being the ones who mature faster or who reach who who start adolescence earlier than men yeah um and so we kind of also see this idea then of that appearing in bluebeard and, and also appearing in sort of the concept of curiosity of women being the ones who start to flirt with adulthood earlier than men and women being the ones who who draw men into adulthood and therefore out of innocence um and the curiosity of that being fatal because that is ultimately what leads to the loss of innocence yeah it's a one-way trip you can't unknow something you know yeah um the next one i've written down is pandora the, the Pandora's box myth. Now, originally, it was a, a sealed jar, a jar sealed with wax, like an amphora. Yeah. But we've changed it to box, basically, since then. Um, uh, Pandora was a, a lovely and rather spoilt woman, um, living with a husband who adored her, and, you know, everyone got along. There was no strife or anything like that. Um, and she had everything she could possibly want. And the gods were jealous, so they gave her husband uh, a jar or a box, to mm -hmm. take care of he leaves it in the care of his wife and says you mustn't open it but it plays away at her it, it grinds away like the secret chamber yeah. <laughs> as in i must know what's inside of it so she scratches she hears voices from inside saying we're trapped let us out in certain versions of the myth as well and she scratches away the wax sealing it and pulls the stopper and all the evils of the world flood out and suddenly she understands old age and pain and sickness and various other things and she finally manages to slam the lid back on um, her husband comes back finds out what she's done and apparently strikes her and um, which she doesn't understand but obviously she's left let cruelty out of the jar as well yeah. this was all so that the gods would not feel slighted and jealous that humans should live strife-free lives and um afterwards when she's crying near the jar another voice says let me out it was the last thing left in the jar um, and it finally persuades her to pull the stopper again and the last thing that comes out is hope 
which always struck me as a child as a very poignant thing, although I didn't like this story as a child. Yeah, and what's particularly interesting is the idea that depending on sort of how you look at it, hope was the greatest evil or hope was the, the balm to a great evil. Yeah. Because hope was the, you're going to keep living with this great evil, um, despite the fact that it's never going to end because there's the hope that it might and therefore it was it was the most terrible thing and that was why it was in there but it's also this thing which actually allows people to keep living and is living the cruelest thing or is it the best thing the hope that things can get better and with that hope the ability to make things better um so it is kind of (laughs) what's particularly interesting about that is that you do see that element of curiosity being punished but also rewarded there yeah yeah absolutely we then obviously have uh le bar bleu uh which is as we mentioned the version by charles perrault written um in 1697 um as part of his histoire au compte de temps passé avec morale um uh, histories of of kind of the olden times with morals (laughs) he had to add with morals (laughs) because <laughs> yes, he was yes, like i'm going to retell these stories but i'm going to give them morals and wholesome again, writing <laughs> completely missed the point <laughs> he really did um and that is the the version most people are most familiar with it's largely what when we said we talked about the basic plot that is pretty much it there are variations as madeline's pointed out but that's yeah. essentially the story yeah and the, what's interesting is the variations come from the translations of it so i think we've got andrew lang's version of it we've got angela carter's version of it etc and sm- it, it is always worth remembering that whenever there is a translation uh, people who are translating are putting things into contexts which make sense for their society and also losing stuff from the original context itself so that's why you can have different versions even though they all come from the same version (laughs) yeah um an interesting variation which i believe comes from the same sources but i don't think it was actually taken from uh, bluebeard by perrault is the white dove by gaston morgard Um, which dates back to the 1700s. We don't know exactly when. Mm -hmm. And it's from his uh, Tales of the Pyrenees, Conte de Pyrenees. And it's an interesting one because you still have... (coughs) You have the... Basically, in this one, it's actually a giant or an ogre who wants to get married. Yeah. Um, And we've... Previously, we have talked about the fact that giants and ogres, particularly when you look at sort of like um, older versions of... Uh, sort of like oral versions might very much be representative of the aristocracy the foreigner or the aristocracy depending on on what you know who's telling the story and where it's coming from so bear Um, that in mind please go on what what I find interesting about this one is that the giant finally goes to a merchant and says he would like to marry his youngest daughter and the father's a bit sort of sort of uncertain but is won over by the giant's obvious wealth etc and the mother doesn't really say anything but when her daughter goes off to be married she gives her daughter three doves a red dove a white dove and black dove and she tells her daughter if all is well with you send me word via the red dove if you are sick send me the white dove and if you are at odds with your husband send me the black dove 
And then the story progresses very much like Bluebeard in the sense of the giant has to go away, allows her the keys, she's overcome with curiosity and, you know, finds her husband to be quite a strange man and looks in the chamber where she finds, we don't know if they're wives or not, but they are the bodies of eight murdered women, so he clearly has proclivities. Yeah. Um, her husband discovers from the whole bloody key situation once again and she sends uh, and he intends to kill her as well she sends her mother the black dove and she sets the white dove on the roof to watch out for help and she just bars herself in her chamber while her husband tries to get in mm-hmm. and throughout the story you've got the white dove saying I cannot see your brothers your brothers are approaching your brothers are here kind of thing yeah and they arrive just in time to kill the giant before she is killed herself and rescue her. Yeah. But what is interesting is that the mother's clearly got... So the father's unsure. The mother's unsure and does something about it within the confines of what women could possibly do in that sort of place and that time, if you see what I mean. Yes. And this is kind of very interesting in that, again, it gives us an indication of what some of the meaning um because it's not as we said previously fairy tales and stuff like that and spinning tales didn't necessarily have morals but they often did have messages and reflections of reality essentially yeah um, which was why they were engaging um and this once again gives us an idea of what the original kind of concept behind bluebeard was and it also why there's a kind of a, it, it continues to prevail even if that theme isn't put at the forefront which is trust your gut instincts um, and you even see it present in Peralt's version whereby the girl is basically saying there is something up with him and it's represented obviously in his blue beard but she know she feels that something is wrong and yet she's won over by everybody basically saying, what a great guy, he's fantastic, look how generous he is, look how wealthy he is, and look how polite and kind he is to you. And she basically goes, yes, I'm overthinking this, I will marry him. But she cannot actually put those instincts to rest. She cannot put the instincts that something is wrong to rest. And when he dangles the possibility that those instincts are right, she has to go and check for herself. Um, because she, you know, she needs to prove herself wrong. She needs to prove that he's absolutely fine, um, but she also needs to prove herself right. Yeah. Um, and for me, I think that's why Bluebeard, another reason Bluebeard remains so prevalent, despite, you know, other than its, its macabre um, and grisly appeal, is the fact that it is an experience that pretty much all women in particular will go through, but, you know, lots of different people will go through, well, that where they will say... Everyone else is saying this guy or this girl or this person is great, but my instincts are saying they're not, but I have been swayed or I've been put into a situation where I cannot actually really examine it. Um, And so we do start to think that perhaps that was really kind of what was going on there is that it it was a, a reversal of the Beauty and the Beast thing where it was essentially a no, Uh, trust your instincts when you look at something and you say there's something bad here go with it (laughs) yeah absolutely um the the next one i've added to the list is actually a ballad and it's lady isabel and the elf knight and it's this one child ballad number four uh it was published sometime around 1750 to 1777 i believe Mm -hmm. um 
I won't go into details, there are various iterations of this particular ballad and obviously they were written down but they were probably sung long before they were ever written down. Yeah. But Lady Isabel is sort of mournfully <laughs> hanging around her, her garden castle saying she wishes that an elf knight would come and bear her away. Uh, this is, is when the Gowans are growing gay. The Gowans are actually daisies, so we're talking somewhere in sort of June, summertime, or May even. Yeah. Um, perfect for the elf people to be nearby. Yeah. Um, and, and an elven knight does hear her and says, yeah, all right then. And he says to for her to get up on his steed behind him and he'll carry her away and marry her. Um, but he bears her away and in deep in the forest he says... I have murdered seven brides already and you shall be the eighth. And she sort of quite quick-wittedly um, says, well, there's very little I can do about you, but you look terribly tired from the what right. Why, why do you not rest your head on my knee and I'll sing you to you for a while and you can sleep before getting to the very tiresome business of murdering me? And he does this because he's clearly <laughs> he's a complete like, idiot. He's like, yeah, that's reasonable. <laughs> and when he's asleep, she ties him up with his own belt and then kills him with his own dagger and then makes her escape on his horse. <laughs> yeah. One of my favourite versions of this is a is one of the folk songs um, where basically she says, if seven brides were were slain here, you can keep them you can keep them company now after she kills him. And I was like, yeah, that's I love the idea of him appearing as a ghost and there's just seven very angry ghosts waiting <laughs> for him. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's others where he's going to drown her or various other things, but it is essentially yeah. I'm luring away an innocent young maiden because I like killing innocent young maidens, and she gets the drop on him. Yeah. Um, then of course we have to move on to the brothers Grimm in 1812. <laughs> um, they have a very grisly collection. Uh, they did have an, they did have Bluebeard in the original, and then they decided that actually it was a French tale, ergo not part of the German tradition. <laughs> yes. Um, they also dropped the Castle of Murder, which is essentially Bluebeard, uh, for the very same reason. But they have other versions like Fitcher's Bird, which, you know, you can check it out. It's very similar. It's a sorcerer who mm -hmm. marries one sister after another and he kills them. And the final sister kind of works out what's going on. And it's actually her curiosity that saves her. Yeah. Um, and the robber bridegroom, which I will mention differently because uh, this is, again, a an illustration of curiosity saving the young woman in question which i believe is what the original before charles perrault got his hand on it yeah. might have been about the story um basically uh, a very well put together young apparently nobleman with lots of wealth etc um wants to marry a local merchant's daughter mm -hmm. and they're all for the match but she's like well, he, he's very charming, but I don't really know much about him. And it bothers her and it eats away at her until eventually she follows him one day when he's unaware of it and follows him into the forest and she sees him go into a little cave. And when he's when he's left the cave, she sneaks in to find out what's going on and there's a bird and it, it says to her, uh, turn back, turn back, thou bonny bride, and in this place do not abide. But she ignores the bird because she's curious. Mm -hmm. And the next person she finds is an old woman. And the old woman says, you've got to get out of here and don't marry that guy because if you do, he'll kill you and they'll eat you. Mm -hmm. She doesn't manage to escape at all because at this point, the young nobleman she's supposed to marry and all his compadres 
come in with the body of a young girl they've just murdered and the the old woman hides the girl um, behind some barrels and things and says just whatever happens you've got to stay silent I can't get go out there um, they start the men start cutting up the body of the girl and eating and one of them s- savagely slashes at the girl's finger to get at a gold ring so mm-hmm. savagely that it sends the finger flying over into the dark and they're going to look for it and the old woman sort of says very grumpily well there's no point looking at it now there's not enough oil in the lamp etc you'll find it just as well by daylight etc it's not going anywhere the finger with the gold ring on it has actually landed in the young girl's lap oh god (laughs) she takes the finger and she puts it in her pocket and she manages to escape with the old woman and she says nothing because she knows she will not be believed everyone believes this young nobleman um, because of his wealth and his charm and the way he presents himself. Mm. Um, and her family's very keen for her to marry up. And then on the wedding day, she is asked if she will say a few words. And she said she would like to speak of a dream that she had the night before. And after every sentence, as she tells the story where she said, I dreamt I followed my husband, my dear husband, to this place in the forest, blah, blah, blah. She says, of course, this was just a dream, my love. She carries on tells the entire story and manages to get it out by saying this was just a dream of course and at the end of the story she pulls out the finger with the gold ring on it as proof and her father and her brothers fall on the nobleman and and murder him um, for basically being a cannibal (laughs) excellent (laughs) good job (laughs) okay um we also then have uh how the devil married three sisters Yeah, um, Thomas Frederick Crane collected this Italian tale in 1885. I think it was written down by somebody else before that, a German, I believe. Um, Mm. I like this one. This follows a very, very similar motif. Basically, the devil decides he wants to get married. He disguises himself as a charming young man with a beautiful house and lots of money, etc. And then he goes and sees a local miller for some reason and says he wants to marry his eldest daughter and the miller's obviously overjoyed and marries the daughter off to him and the devil says right you may do anything um my dear but you will wear these flowers for me and this is a little nosegay she keeps in her bosom which was not an unusual thing at that particular time um mm-hmm. you can do anything except open this door <laughs> basically that's one door in the house she's not to open Obviously, the minute he's off somewhere, she's, she goes and opens the door. The door opens mm. into hell, and the fires of hell, the heat from hell, lights the flowers that he's given her. And when he comes back, he sees this hellfire blighted bloom and uh, knows what she's done. So he grabs her and says, well, you wanted your curiosity satisfied, have at it, and thrusts her through the door into hell. Then he goes and marries the second sister, and the second sister does the same thing. Um... So again, he throws her into hell. And then with the third sister, he marries her. And um, she thinks, well, the flowers are going to wilt if I keep them in my dress. So she puts in a little vase of water and she obviously opens the door, realises what has happened and helps her two sisters out of hell. And then she conceals them in the house. Very good, very good. The devil comes back, (laughs) finds that her flowers are still fresh and says, ah, you are my true love. And he apparently falls unconditionally in love with her because she has not given in to her curiosity or he doesn't think she has. Um, She then manages to trick him 
into sending wealth to her father. You know, he, he says, she says, um, my eyes can see a long way, husband. You must take this basket to my father um, because I'm sure he's sore in need of food, etc. Um, and you must do it without putting the basket down. If you do, I will know because my eye can see you. So the devil is tricked into carrying this covered basket all the way back to the miller's house with the first sister concealed inside it. And it's very heavy and he wants to put the basket down. The minute he tries to, the sister inside the basket says, my eye can see you, I know what you want to do. <laughs> nice. So he delivers his first wife back to his father-in-law. And the, the young girl does the same with the second sister. And then she makes a mannequin of herself and sits it by the fire and uh, conceals herself in the basket um, having given him the same instructions this time obviously when he's trying to put the basket down she says my eye can see you and he's like my god this woman's got a pair of eyes on her <laughs> she's also apparently got a, a real sort of pair of lungs because she, she's calling over an incredible distance <laughs> uh, delivers her back to the house then he goes home and he demands food from his wife because he's really tired and hungry by this point having carried three women back to their father without knowing it uh, discovers that the mannequin is made of rags and he goes mad and sort of wrecks it and then he charges back to the miller's house to demand his wife back and then finds that all three of his wives are there laughing at him and at this point the devil decides that actually having three wives means he's very outnumbered and maybe he doesn't really want to be married at all and he runs away and that's the last you ever hear of the devil wanting to get married okay i love it <laughs> not gonna lie <laughs> Fantastic. Um, <laughs> um, finally, um, we have Mr. Fox uh, by Joseph Jacobs, um, which was written in 1890, if I'm correct. Yeah, I kind of like this one. Um, Lady Mary is courted by a very promising young suitor, but like the girl in The Robber Bridegroom, she becomes a bit suspicious because she realises she really doesn't know very much about him. And then it kind of follows a very similar pattern in a mashup of the Robber Bridegroom and Bluebeard, whereby she follows him to find out more about him and then discovers he's actually a serial killer. Um, and and yeah. she tricks him um, basically into... Well, she, she tricks him and ends up killing him instead. So it's kind of got the Lady, Lady Isabel and the Elf Knight thing going on. But once again, yeah. it's her curiosity, her who am I marrying really thing, which which yeah. helps preserve her. Um, I think there's a, a strong hint of Rainodyne there as well, where you've got that, that French villain, the fox, who is very charming and quite the rake, who seduces yeah. young women and um, just leaves them in ruin kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so... Um, we're going to look at sort of some of the themes of the stories uh, before we actually kind of maybe examine uh, some of the sort of the modern uh, retellings as well, um, which have done some very interesting things with that. Uh, so I think in terms of themes, the, the most prominent is obviously curiosity, uh, both as an asset and obviously as a drawback as well. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, look, if you look at the comparable tales with Perrault's version and mm. the fact that we're pretty sure there was an oral tradition of this story before then, which Perrault adapted and that we've since lost, I think mm. the moral of the story was the complete opposite of Perrault's, which was 
as you say, trust your gut instincts and curiosity may well get you out of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. So the whole sort of, um, this is a really sexist fairy tale, and it's like, well, all of them are by our standards today, but I think this was more about sort of, no, don't go completely blinkered into marriage thinking that he's going to be a wonderful prince. He might actually turn out to be the beast kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, like, the other thing is there's something beneath it which is you should be suspicious of sudden good fortune particularly if it's too good to be true it's like the basic thing of how not to be conned yeah which is if it's too good to be true particularly very wealthy noble proposing to a young miller's daughter or something like that why why is this the case you know yeah um be suspicious of this yeah, is it because you are comparatively powerless and you will have no one to appeal to? Yes. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think, again, we just, it gets lost. A lot of it gets lost. And in particular, it gets lost because, not just because of sort of the period in which it's being translated by, but as we said at the beginning, who it's being translated by and who it's being translated for. And that's, again, very important to recognise, particularly if we're looking at, you know, um, the, the sort of the 16, 1700s, etc. With, with Perrault and whatnot. Who is he writing for? He's writing for the people who can read. Yeah. Um, and even though there was, depending where you were, a lot more people who could read than you might think, the people who were going to be affording books, the people who were going to be affording what Perrault was writing, were going to be the... Um, the Aristo, okay? Um, and he was giving, he was writing things as sort of manuals of conduct for their children and to please them. So, of course, it's going to be different from what you would basically tell to your daughter if you were both working class, if you were both part of the peasantry, where actually marriage for love was possible just as much as marriage for elevation was possible, etc. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, another obvious theme is how well do you know the man you married or intend to marry? Mm. So don't be beguiled by wealth and... Uh, you know, a tolerably attractive person or by everybody saying, yeah, this is a great match. Yeah. Again, I think it's one of those things which really um, pr proves why this story is so prevailing, despite all of its different kind of iterations, is that I think almost everybody, and now it's not marriage nowadays, but almost everybody I know has kind of like been like, yeah, I dated him because everyone was kind of telling me to date him and I thought, okay, yeah, I guess, why not? It was just the expectation um, rather than it being, uh, you know, actually because of any real attraction or anything like that. Um, or that, yes, I started going out with him because he seemed like a decent guy, but I didn't really know anything about him before I, I went on holiday with him or stuff like that. Yeah. And you hear horror stories about people who've like, they think they get on very well and then they realise they don't actually know a person before suddenly they're out on a boat in the middle of the ocean with them and they can't really escape this person that they've become. Yeah. Um, there's also the whole sexual attraction overcoming good sense thing. Um, yeah. The more sanitised version of fairy tales tend to write out 
uh, obvious metaphors for sexuality and yet something that every good peasant tale has and acknowledges is that you know most people want it and most yeah. people want it and come to enjoy it or enjoy it or just want to explore it etc um, yeah, but the, there are times when you can be powerfully attracted to someone I mean think of Mr Fox with his great his great personality apparently and his fine clothes etc covering up the fact that he's an actual literal nightmare monster um yes she's very very attracted to him but her good sense lady mary's good sense sort of takes over and says hang on you don't know very much about him let's not make this irrevocable kind of thing yes which is sensible (laughs) um and I think that's kind of something that, again, Perrault kind of lost in translation a little bit. Yes. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. Um, I think he really did uh, lose that. Um, in fact, he kind of almost reversed it by basically s- suggesting that Bluebeard was not sexually attractive because he did have that blue beard, yeah. which was meant to be kind of repugnant. Yeah. Yeah. Um we then also get the be wary of those who have more power than you, which I think is very, very important um, and often overlooked. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's uh, it, There's obviously different selection pressures, I suppose, is one way of putting it, mm-hmm. um, when it comes to relationships and things and how. But a really unequal power dynamic is never usually a good thing. Because even if you haven't got someone who is definitely intent on abusing it, they may end up abusing it by default. Yeah. And of course, it's always important to remember that power dynamics come in different ways. So, for example, there's nothing inherently wrong with dating or marrying someone who is significantly more wealthy than you. But if within the relationship there's this sudden dependability whereby um you know you 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 find yourself in a position where you are cannot work you have all the only access you have to money is through the other person you have no other way out then that is obviously a severe imbalance in the dynamic of your relationship yeah absolutely so you've got to be very wary of it and of course it gets a little bit complicated because there are obviously situations whereby you might need someone who can take care of you because of uh, you need a, a carer or something like that but again there's kind of everything has got to balance out in one way or another um, you have got to be able to sort of be um, what's the word independent within your own sphere yeah um, rather than dependent on everything of another person including all emotional fulfillment etc and particularly be wary of people who put you into a situation whereby they are therefore the only person that you are dependent on or be wary of of being the person who makes someone else makes someone else become your you know dependent or that you become dependent on that etc um, Bluebeard does kind of warn about all of those. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm in two minds about this other theme, which is that surviving trauma can create wisdom. 
I think there's an element of that, but I think that's more of a knock-on effect from the situation in this one. I don't think it was deliberately in there as a, yes, this, this is to give this message kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Is that I think it's, it's a theme that comes out, but I don't think it was an intentional idea that was being put forward. And it's kind of weird in Perrault's one where it's like, well, she put her nasty experience with Bluebeard behind it and remarried. And I'm like, I had all, if it was me and I had all that wealth, then maybe I just wouldn't remarry because then it would belong to my husband and I would be once again subject to someone else's control. So, and I realise that yeah. that's Perrault saying, well, no woman is really complete without her husband. But um, yeah, in that she, she, was, she was happier that way. Um, and of course, that the way that the wealth was used was to secure marriage for all of her sisters, which I do also, again, appreciate. But he had an agenda and that he was basically saying that is the way of the world, which is, yeah. again, a bit, a bit weird bit weird parole <laughs> okay um and then the last one obviously is that there are some very obvious metaphors for domestic abuse yeah i think this kind of resonates particularly in the white dove whereby the mother is unsure so she gives her daughter an out yeah because clearly the mother knows quite well what can happen or could potentially happen. She's alert to dangers that her daughter perhaps hasn't really had a chance to think about yet. Yes. Yeah, completely agree. Okay, um, so let's have a little look at a few modern retellings um, and what what they've kind of done with them. Uh, so um, I'm gonna let Jules take the first one because she's more familiar with this one. Yeah, this is a little novella by Catherine Valanti called Comfort Me With Apples, and it's kind of a mashup of The Garden of Eden um, and Bluebeard, except that you feel, it's very fancy, obviously, but it, it feels like you're in this gated community, this very exclusive place, mm -hmm. and the main character is striving very hard to be everything she should be kind of thing. Um, and her husband, Adam, is out working with the animals and naming things all the time. And, you know, this, there's this subtle hint of menace all the way through, like every other character in the story knows what's going on except her. Um, yeah. And then when she finally makes the discovery um, of the previous many dead wives before her um, in the cellar under the house where Adam sometimes goes, uh, she sort of runs away and sits down under the forbidden tree at the edge of this gated community and the serpent does speak to her and says look your way out of this is to eat this fruit and to give some of it to your husband bake it into a pie make him an apple pie kind of thing mm. she doesn't do it she does what so many abuse victims do and that is go back to her abuser because it completes her abuse narrative and you're left at the end with a serpent saying, well, maybe he'll be able to help the next one. Maybe the next one will just have enough of herself, enough core of who she is separate from this person, separate from Adam, to be able to say, yeah. no, enough, and I'm just going to walk away. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of horrific, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Um and interestingly enough, it's kind of, it reminds me a little bit of uh, uh, Joyce, o uh, sort of Carol Oates's uh, version of uh, Bluebeard, which is Bluebeard at Lover. And 
I, I kind of actually enjoy it, even though it's it's a slightly strange one. Uh, because within the story, basically, you have it's told within like as as a group of little snapshots, essentially. Yeah. Uh, where this woman is conscious of the fact that her husband's previous wives were killed. Yeah. And when he gives her the key, she goes, "Okay." She wears it around her neck, and she doesn't, she doesn't go into the key. You know, she doesn't do that. She just carries on with her life and um, and is very successful because of it. Uh, you know, she she's there. He basically, when he comes back and sees that she's obeyed him, he says that he he truly does love her. Um, and then they're going to have a child, etc. And it's interesting because you can read it in two different ways. You can read it with her basically saying that she has consciously made a decision, knowing what the consequences are, so that she can have the best life that she possibly wants um and she's basically gaming the system because she knows what the system is actually like or alternatively um that actually um she is actually a victim of abuse who's just kind of going in with it because that's all she knows um but what's interesting to me is sort of from a modern perspective i look at it and i kind of think like there's something else here which is it's a story about privacy yeah um and about basically respecting boundaries within a relationship and if we don't think of him killing his his wives as literal if we think of it more along the lines of him divorcing him you know separating uh, with these other people there's this interesting perspective which is that he has consistently turned around to, to people and said I'd like you not to go into this space I'd like you to respect this my, my privacy here um, and you know if you do uh, you know we'll, we'll actually have a successful relationship because there's nothing in this story that says that he won't eventually show her and so it for me it was very interesting because it kind of reversed it and said that actually yes one should trust one's instincts but also one should respect the respect boundaries in a relationship um and so yeah it, it was for me it was very interesting as a modern retelling because it, it basically said let's look at some other modern issues on the other side particularly with women um kind of being sometimes inherently suspicious of men or accusing them of certain things or jumping to conclusions about them um and also not how not respecting their need for privacy, their need for their own space, etc. Yeah, that is interesting. I haven't read that one, so it's a it's a really short story. Um, I and, and you can probably find it online. To be honest, um, it's it's well worth reading. Uh, not only just because it's a bit Carol <laughs> uh, Oates is a bit of a weird person, I think. Yeah. but it's an interesting <laughs> piece of writing. Uh, do you uh, want to field the bloody chamber? Yeah, I'll, I will feel the bloody chamber. Uh, we have to talk about Angela Carter's The Bloody Chamber. Now, The Bloody Chamber is both the name of the anthology um, and also the story. Uh, and it's a very, very no well-known retelling of uh, Bluebeard. Um, it's also very obviously been inspired by Le Marquis de Sade. Yeah. Um, who is kind of we see echoes of a little bit in terms of um uh, what's his face uh gil 
De Reis. Yeah, Gilles de Reis. Um, it was a similar kind of thing. Now, whether Le Marquis ever committed the crimes that he was accused of, or whether or not he just wrote and fetishized those kinds of things, uh, is a big debate. Um, I personally do think that he did commit those crimes and that he was an incredibly awful person. Um, now, Angela Carter, when she wrote The Bloody Chamber, was also writing something called The Sadian Woman. And she was drawing on this concept of the whole, um, the whole accurate reflection of what life is like versus what uh, Perrault and his lot sort of put life forward as. Um, where basically Carter, when she wrote The Bloody Chamber, was basically saying uh, the Aristor will abuse these kinds of things. There will be people who abuse their power um, and there will be people who are actually unintentionally attracted to that but not evil, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, what what are humans? Are we very much just, is it eat or be eaten? Um, and are actually those the only two choices? So she had this whole kind of narrative that's going on with the Bloody Chamber. Now, the Bloody Chamber is interesting because it's obviously set more in the kind of the 1920s, um, where they have cars, they have trains, etc. Um, but as this young bride, she's about 17 years old, goes to marry a, a marquis. So again, I really do think she was just, this guy is Le Marquis de Sade. Uh, she goes to marry him. Um, she kind of goes off to his sort of little island where he very much becomes the king and the ruler sort of of the in the old world sort of sense he he's sort of untouchable yeah um, and also I think we can see very clearly that not only was Carter drawing on Perrault's bluebeard because I think she drew a lot on Perrault because she had some things about Perrault she was also drawing on um, the white dove uh, and namely, this was because the, 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 the bride's mother uh, is the one who's a little bit worried. And the bride is marrying the Marquis because she wants to secure comfort for her mother. Yeah. Essentially. She wants to make sure that her mother is comfortable and stuff like that. And so she's doing it out of this misguided sense of, of need. And Le Marquis is marrying her because he wants to basically... He's married lots of different women in the past and they've all had different things. And what she can offer is innocence. Um, so he's had, I think, like six other brides and he wants to... He This is the first time he's marrying a virgin girl and essentially he wants to corrupt her. It's a new experience for him. And what's interesting is that when she is in trouble, it is not the brothers who come, it is her mother yeah. who arrives. Um, and in this, what is, to be honest, one of the most epic scenes, because I really do love it, because they're just, the mother rides in um, and she, she's got this shotgun. <laughs> she just shoots Bluebeard. Yeah. Um, who's not Bluebeard, he's the Marquis. Um, and obviously, again, second wave feminism and all that jazz, you really do see it kind of coming through. But it is a very interesting and rather entertaining version of the story with a lot of kind of female empowerment where the, the key to the story is, is love, essentially. At the end of the day, um, the mother 
is more than capable of protecting her daughter and the moment her daughter needs her she comes flying in um against all stereotypes of what women should be you know as being domestic and stuff like that and also against all stereotypes of what men should be because you have essentially she does get a lover the bride gets a lover despite never really doing anything with him which is her blind piano tuner who is gentle and sweet um and basically cannot judge her based on what she looks like uh, they just seem to actually fall in love with each other through their shared interests and the fact that they're both of a similar temperament yeah um now we've actually also got a kind of a couple of retellings told by uh uh t kingfisher um and i've read one and jules has read the other so um you've read nettle and bone haven't you yeah she's i wouldn't say this is like a direct retelling but it draws definitely on bluebeard because i've obviously spoken about it at length and i recommended it and i still recommend it by the way um but you have the youngest sister who as a child sees her older sister go off to marry the prince of a nearby kingdom and mm. then is horribly shocked and upset when her sister's body is brought back not long afterwards um and then the second sister is married to the same prince and as this younger sister grows up she realizes that her mother is basically being held you know, her, her kingdom is being held to ransom by if she does not provide a daughter for this prince to marry, he will invade and crush her kingdom. So the only right. way is to make a marriage link between them. And she is, the younger sister sees her, the, the second sister, and when she's pregnant and understands that there's something terribly, terribly wrong going on. And it takes her a long time to wake up to what is essentially a domestic abuse situation and go and fulfill these impossible tasks in order to gain a weapon to kill this prince. Mm. Um, it's a really good book. It's actually very funny, although it does have some quite dark themes as well. But the, the initial setup with the three sisters and the prince who is essentially a domestic abuser who has it killed at least one of his brides and is likely to kill the second one, mm -hmm. um, is very definitely Bluebeard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is another retelling which does feel a little bit more kind of literal, which is Seventh Bride. Yeah. Um, where, again, it's actually a miller's daughter and it's a sorcerer who is who no one knows is a sorcerer um, until, you know, a little bit too late. And again, it involves the seventh bride, basically. She's been she's been brought in. She's basically been told she has to marry him. She, they all know something's fishy, but there's nothing they can do about it because they are, you know, her father's a miller, her mother's a miller, and she is just a miller's daughter. They cannot argue against a member of the Aristo. So what are they supposed to do, essentially? So she has to go, and when she arrives, she realises that he has already married... He has six other um, six other wives. Yeah, and all of them have fallen to terrible fates. Where essentially they discover that he's married these women, and he takes something from each of them, uh, and basically sells sells those things off. So from one he took their magic, from another um, he took her eyes, from one he took her life, and etc. and this young girl basically has to first of all do this series of tasks um and is basically told if you don't do it i'll marry you 
by the sorcerer. Yeah. And then has to kind of actually um, sort of play around with things. And what's quite interesting is we also see elements of like the, the hell myth yeah. as well, the, the, the devil's one, because there's another reality that's involved and people going into it. And it's actually a very, very good read. There are definitely some terribly gruesome little bits um but i do highly recommend it for anyone yeah she does great fairy tale retellings and she also does pretty good horror as well <laughs> yeah absolutely um okay my final example is the slightly disturbing um science fiction film ek machina which you know now i'm looking back in hindsight is kind of a very obvious Bluebeard retelling. I mean, the computer programming company that's creating the AIs is actually called Blue Book, for example. Right. <laughs> and you start off from the perspective of um, this computer programmer is trying to create a literal AI that will pass the Turing test, whereby you know it's indistinguishable from a human. Ergo, it will be technically alive. Right. And he create he does it by creating this series of female robots. And when one goes wrong, he sort of, you know, dismantles it and shoves it in a cupboard. And he finally gets close to perfection as possible. And of course, this robot discovers the previous discarded models in a cupboard. Mm-hmm. And I think the perspective then changes. But we're, well, no, the perspective doesn't change. But suddenly we're seeing this robot, which is this perfected woman who has this terrible who has no affiliation or loyalty she's not been asked if she wants this this man at all and she's discovered what happened to all the ones who came before her and it's almost like you get bluebeard's perspective the thoughtlessness the thoughtless male idea that you know if you create something then it's yours and you can do what you like with it yeah, and she's the absolute downfall of him and the company, and it's it's kind of horrible actually. It's really chilling, because it's very definitely she's something other, and yet yeah. she has reasons for what she does. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually very very interesting. It's like I don't need to see that film again. I can't honestly say I enjoyed it, but it was interesting. <laughs> Yeah. And again, I think this is the thing about Bluebeard for the modern day, is that as a story for the modern day, it has a lot of potential in terms of looking at modern situations where, to be honest, we don't really have the whole, right, well, we, um, you know, marriage really before we, uh, we get to know each other in the Western world. We don't really have that to the same degree. But we do have absolutely this kind of, um, you know, this this story of, of relationships. And what, how can you use Bluebeard as a template to look at modern relationships? And there's just so much potential there, yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting because I obviously teach a, a, a fairy tale module. And Bluebeard was, and The Bloody Chamber was one of the texts that we really looked at. And so over the years, I've seen lots of students uh, use the Bluebeard story um, to kind of 
re-examine things for the modern day and seen some really interesting iterations of it, uh, particularly um, when you kind of look at it by reversing the by reversing genders, and it starts to actually make some good points about how we treat other people in relationships and the expectations of that. So I think that it's so enduring because the themes just continue to be prevalent throughout. Yeah, absolutely. It is still very opposite for our times, even undergoing the usual shape-shifting that a fairy tale does to survive. Yeah. Completely agree. Um, so yeah, we've we've reached the end of our episode for today. Um, do let us know what you guys think. You know, um, are there other versions of this uh, of Bluebeard uh, which you think we ought to know about, um, or that we you think we should discuss? Please let us know. And and what do you think about the fairy tale as well? Um, as always, we love to hear from you. Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And uh, Jules, I believe that you've got one for us, which is rather apt, actually. I have. It's called The Last Tale of the Flower Bride, and it's by Roshani Chokski. And basically, you have three perspectives in this book. Um, one of them is that of the bridegroom. So it's kind mm -hmm. of a gender-bent bluebeard already. Um, mm -hmm. The second one... Sorry, is it three? Is it... Yeah, and, so, and the other one is sort of like a past viewpoint um, from uh, a, another character's perspective, which, you know, you, you get to. Anyway, the bridegroom meets this compelling and beautiful woman called Indigo. And they have a whirlwind romance that's kind of based on their mutual love of fairy tales. They tell each other fairy tales, even as they're sort of in bed together kind of thing. And they get married and she says, whatever you do, you must not pry into my past. And he says, he agrees, he's, he's besotted and he agrees. And there's no mm -hmm. trouble with keeping that until um, a family tragedy calls her home to the island where her great estate is. And right. he obviously goes with her and he starts to find it really difficult to keep his promise because there's too much strangeness going on. And there's mm. elements of magical realism, elements of actually, can they just cross over into the Fey realm? Not sure. Mm -hmm. And elements of, it feels like a murder mystery as well. I don't want to spoilify it, but it's a really interesting sort of gender-bent mashup of of the tale of Bloedeveth and also Bluebeard and various other things. And there's tiny threads and themes from other fairy tales and it's all woven together really, really skillfully. Highly recommend it. Beautifully told as well. Okay. All right, I will definitely have to check that out. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. 